you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The following case is yet another which I initially heard of in the writings of Charles Fort. In his book Wild Talents, in a passage immediately following the one in which he mentions the disappearance of Ambrose Small, which I covered back in episode 56, comes a section in which he describes a murder which took place in the English town of Stretton. The correspondent who wrote this story was an illogical fellow, Fort wrote, who loaded his story with an unrelated circumstance, or, with a dim suspicion of an unexplained relationship, he noted that in a field, not far from where the body of the girl lay, was found the body of a crow. Upon looking into this case further, I found it to be more prosaic and far less inexplicable than I had at first thought. To be fair, Fort doesn't say anything about the murder being inexplicable in nature, with even the presence of the crow accounted for. But far from an unexplained relationship, or at least a relationship was hypothesized, albeit two years after the publication of Fort's book, the dead crow was to factor into the case, and possibly to provide an alternative explanation. This is episode 87, and this is the story of the murder of Bella Wright, better known as the Green Bicycle Mystery. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Stretton, or variations on that name, occur as both a place name and surname throughout Britain. As Reverend Samuel Pegg wrote in his 1784 Roman Roads of Derbyshire, the name of Stretton must be derived from the situation of the town so-called on some of the streetways, or via strata, paved ways, of the Romans. Along the Roman road called the Via Divana in Leicestershire, there are two villages so named, Little Stretton, otherwise known as Stretton Parva, and Great Stretton, otherwise Stretton Magna. It was just outside Little Stretton that the following story begins. It was nearly 9.30pm on the night of July 5th, 1919, when a farmer named Joseph Cow, who lived at nearby Elms Farm, was driving a few cattle along a section of the Via Divana running nearest the two Strettons, this section being called Gartree Road. As he neared the lane heading northwards to the village, he saw something lying in the road ahead, which he at first took to be something that had fallen off a passing wagon. But drawing nearer, he noticed it was the body of a young woman lying diagonally, with the lower half of her body on the grassy verge of the road's edge. Her face was bloody, and a large pool of blood was on the road around her head. 
There was a bicycle lying in the road next to the body. This cow picked up and leaned against a nearby fence. Then, realizing the girl was dead, quickly made his way to Little Stretton to fetch the police. It was nearly an hour before PC Alfred Hall arrived on the scene. He noted a few spots of blood on the bicycle, but not much. Hall, Cal, and two boys named Naylor and Deacon, who Cal had gotten to watch over the body while he fetched the police, loaded the body into the back of a wagon and waited for the coroner. A short time later, Dr. Edward Williams arrived to take charge of the body, which he examined at a small unused chapel in Little Stretton. It wasn't until the next day, when Dr. Williams could examine the body under better light, that the cause of death was known. Until now, the young woman was thought to have died as a result of an accidental fall from her bicycle. But when the body was being examined by Dr. Williams, and the blood washed away from the face, a wound, apparently from a small caliber bullet, was discovered on the left side of her head below the eye. The bullet's path traveled diagonally upwards, exiting through the parietal bone on the right side of the head. Other than this, the young woman's body was unharmed. There was no sign of sexual assault, and what other minor wounds were found, slight bruising and scratches mainly, Dr. Williams thought was highly consistent with what one would expect to see from a tumble on the graveled road. Dr. Williams and Dr. Edgar Phillips did a formal post-mortem on the body on July 7th, and concluded based on the appearance of the outside of the bullet wound, that it had been fired from close range, likely no more than four or five feet. But before Dr. Williams had conducted his first examination of the body and determined it to be a homicide, P.C. Hall had revisited the crime scene once more to investigate it in the light of day. It was nearly 10.30 at night when he got there the night before, after all, and nearly pitch black on the country road. He noted quite a few bird tracks around the body, and some bloody footprints on the wooden gate to the nearby farm fields. He left the crime scene but returned later, for a tentative identification of the dead girl had come across his desk. Mary Ann Wright, from nearby Stroughton, reported that her 21-year-old daughter Bella had not returned home the previous evening. In the company of Joseph Cow, he again returned to the crime scene around 6 that evening, ground deeply into the road as if it had been trod upon, quite possibly by Cal's cattle the night before. He found a bullet. On the other side of the gate, they discovered the body of a crow, the same crow mentioned in the previously quoted passage by Charles Fort. I've attached a link to a Google map someone helpfully made that shows where the different sites associated with this story are. And so on July 7th, Mary Ann Wright came to look at the body and confirmed that it was, indeed, her daughter. Now the police had a name to go with a victim, and began to track her movements on the afternoon of July 5th. Annie Bella Wright, usually known simply as Bella, was born in Summerby in 1898 to Keenis and Mary Ann Wright. She left school at 13 to work as a domestic servant, and six years later in 1917, left there to go work at a factory in Leicester. Two years after that, she left the factory to take a job at the Bates Rubber Works, also in Leicester, where she was making tires. By this time, she had become engaged to a young man named Archie Ward, who was in the Navy. She had been working at the Bates Rubber Works only five months when she died. With the aid of Mary Ann Wright, they swiftly tracked down George Measures, a peg-legged road worker from Galby, 
who was Bella's uncle and likely the last person to see her alive. Measures, as well as his daughter, Margaret Evans, and her husband, James, were questioned. These three told how Bella came to their house around 7.15 that evening. Soon after she arrived at the home, Measures said he went to the door to meet the postman and said that there was a stranger in the road outside. Bella had told James Evans that she had earlier met the man on the road and said that he was from Great Glen and inquired about the name of the village. But as Galby is less than three miles from Great Glen, is it really likely that someone from, from that town wouldn't know the name of the other? The same man was still pacing outside near the house at about 8 o'clock, according to the three witnesses. George Measures said that Bella went outside around 8.30 to get back on her bicycle, and that the strange man was yet again approaching down the lane, this time with his own bicycle in tow. The man said, Bella, I thought you had gone the other way, as he approached. She said nothing in reply. Margaret Evans said that upon this, Bella went back into the house to get a wrench, a spanner for the Brits listening, to fix her bicycle, and again said that she didn't know the man. James Evans helped her fix her bicycle, and then at about 8.45, she finally mounted her bicycle and left. The man rode off in the same direction. Whoever this man was, he was plainly someone of interest that the police wanted to talk to. But no one had any idea who he was. Certainly George Measures and Mr. and Mrs. Well, might possibly have known his name, but it wasn't exactly possible to ask her now, was it? The three Galby witnesses provided a pretty good description of the man. He looked to be about 40, probably about 5'7 in height, and was pale and clean-shaven. He seemed fairly broad-shouldered. He spoke with a cockney accent and had a somewhat squeaky voice and wore a gray suit and hat. James Evans, who was outside with Bella when the man stood there with his own bicycle, said that it was a green BSA model which appeared to have been recently repaired. The police issued handbills detailing the description of this mysterious man and of his bicycle and appealing to the public for help. On July 8th, these efforts paid off when a Leicester bicycle dealer named Harry Cox came forward. He said that he had recently done some repair work on just such a bicycle as was described. On July 2nd, he said, a green BSA bicycle had been brought into his shop by a man answering the description provided by the three Galby witnesses. He talked with the man a bit, learning that he was a decommissioned army officer. He worked in London, but was on vacation and staying with some friends in Leicester. He last saw the man on July 5th, the day of the murder, when he had picked up his bicycle and rode off in the direction of Evington, the same general direction as Galby and Little Stretton. With mention of his living in London, Police reached out to Scotland Yard. Also on July 8th, the coroner's inquest was formally held. Only two witnesses were called, Marianne Wright and Joseph Cow. Marianne to confirm the body was that of her daughter, and Cow to confirm that it was the same body he found near Little Stretton. The death of Annie Bella Wright was, was ruled a homicide and the body released for burial. She was buried on July 11th, 1919, at the St. Mary and All Saints Churchyard in Stoughton. Here I should mention a bit of an irregularity. If you look Annie Bella right up and find a grave, it comes up with a picture of her gravestone, 
but for some reason it lists the place of burial as St. Peter's Churchyard in Stoughton, Wiltshire, rather than the actual churchyard in Stoughton. Once Bella was buried, however, with neither the Leicester Police nor Scotland Yard making any headway on the investigation, the media swiftly lost interest. By September 1919, mentions of the case in the press had mainly disappeared, and the case faded from public eye. It seems, however, that P.C. Hall kept tabs on the case whenever possible, but I can imagine that even he started to lose hope that anything would ever come of it. The police had already tracked down and interviewed most every owner of a green BSA bicycle they could find, with no result, and had already ruled out her fiancé Archie Ward as well. So the case sank into relative obscurity, until a chance occurrence, six months later, led to a breakthrough. February 23, 1920, was a day like any other for deliveryman Enoch Whitehouse of Leicester, who made a living piloting his boat along the rivers and canals of the city. That day, he was making a delivery to St. Mary's Mills, which, by way of an almost eerie coincidence, was the factory where Bella had worked at the time of her death. As he was docking at the factory, some of the rope snagged something in the water. He pulled it out to reveal a partially disassembled bicycle. A green BSA model, to be exact. Just the sort the police were looking for. A bicycle dealer named William Saunders was called in to examine it and confirmed that it was the correct model. It was. He noted that the serial numbers had been filed off, which disappointed the authorities momentarily. But then, investigating it more thoroughly, he found a second serial number. Numbers in hand, the police went to see Albert Davis at the head office of the Birmingham Small Arms Company in Redditch, Worcestershire. He consulted his books and found that the bicycle with that serial number had been ordered in 1910 and dispatched to Orton Brothers, a bicycle dealer in Darby. To Darby they went now, finding from Joseph Orton that the bicycle had been sold to one Ronald Light. A check of the two addresses Orton had on file was made, Light no longer being resident at either. However, luck continued to hold, and a boarder at one of the addresses remembered him and was able to point the police in the right direction. Ronald Light was arrested on March 4, 1920, working at the time as a mathematics and engineering tutor at Dean Close School in Cheltenham, Gloucestershire. Light confirmed to Superintendent Herbert Taylor that he had been resident in Leicester in July 1919, as Harry Cox had told police. He denied, however, ever having been to Galby, or in fact ever even having heard of the place. Once again, though, this strains the bounds of credulity, as Light was from Leicester, claiming to have not heard of a town only five miles from your hometown? Unlikely. He also denied knowing Bella Wright at all, or having bought a green BSA bicycle. Predictably, he changed tack once the police made it clear that he knew he had, in fact, purchased one from Orton Brothers in 1910. Then he admitted that he had, but also predictably claimed that he sold it to a man whose name he couldn't remember. Later, after taken to the police station and identified positively by Harry Cox, he said that he had remembered the name of the man to whom he sold the bicycle, a Charles Bourne of Darby. There were, in fact, at least two men named Charles Bourne living in Darby at the time. Ronald Light was formally charged with suspicion of murder after George Measures and James Evans also identified Light as the man that had been loitering at their home on July 5th. 
Margaret Evans, however, failed to identify him. Ronald Vivian Light had been born October 19, 1885, in Leicester, to George and Catherine Light. His family was fairly wealthy, and he was able to attend private school. But in 1902, he was expelled from the Oakham School in Leicester for inappropriate conduct. It seems he had lifted up the dress of a female student. He attended college in London, graduating in 1906, and soon after, getting work with the Midland Railway in Derby. By 1910, he had become an engineer with a railway, and it was at this time that he bought the green bicycle from Orton Brothers. His career was going well. In 1911, he received a further engineering degree. But shortly after the outbreak of World War I, in October of 1914, there was again an incident of what nature we don't exactly know, and Light was fired from the railway. In January 1915, he enlisted in the army, and by November 1915, he was in France. His mechanical expertise had qualified him to be a second lieutenant in the Royal Engineers. But in January 1916, he was shipped back to England. No documentation has been found detailing exactly what prompted this change of posting, but it was rumored that he had assaulted a woman in France. Whatever the case, by July 1916, he was stripped of his officer's commission on grounds of not being officer material. In September 1916, he re-enlisted, this time as a gunner. His unit was kept in London rather than being sent to France. He was soon charged with forging of telegrams, though, after messages ordering that the unit be kept in England, supposedly from Lord Denby, commander of the Honorable Artillery Company, were received. The forgery was discovered when the real Lord Denby wrote to the unit commander, angrily demanding to know why exactly they had stayed in England. He was jailed for a time, but in 1917 he was released and sent to France. He returned to England with an injury, and it is again reported that in September of 1918 he made improper advances toward the 15-year-old daughter of an ambulance driver. He was demobilized in February 1919, and from that time he lived at his mother's house in Leicester, his father having since died. From here the case proceeded swiftly. Light was arraigned on March 24, 1920, and on June 9th, Rex v. Light opened. Presiding was Mr. Justice Thomas Gardner Horridge. Sir Gordon Ewart, Attorney General of England, was the prosecuting attorney. Light's family was able to pay for his defense to be taken up by Sir Edward Marshall Hall, K.C., often called the Great Defender. Marshall Hall had previously worked on the famous Camden Town murder in 1907 and the Brides and the Bath murders, was nearly attorney for Dr. Crippen in 1910, and would go on in subsequent years to defend Princess Marguerite Fami for the murder of her husband, Egyptian Prince Fami Bey. The Crown's case put forward that Bella Wright and Ronald Light had known each other. The jury heard from two young girls named Muriel Nunny and Valeria Caven, who had in March told police that they had previously been accosted by Light on the day of the murder. The testimony of these two girls was combined with the offense that got him kicked out of school, and the rumored one that got him sent back to England during World War I, to frame him as a sex offender who fixated on Bella, lured her to a rural area on Gartree Road, 
and shot her with his 455 Webley service revolver. Marshall Hall's defense was wisely focused on not necessarily Brown's case to be fraudulent, but on causing the jury to question just enough of it to get a not guilty verdict. This was a tact that he utilized several times in cases that he prosecuted, and one which led to accusations by some that he that he wasn't actually that good a lawyer. It was evident, however, that he could construct a legal argument. He just chose not to when possible. First, there was the matter of trying to discredit the testimony of Nunny and Caven. This was fairly easy to do, as since their statement came six months after the fact, it was a simple matter to suggest that the event either hadn't happened or that the man wasn't light. Second, dispute the ballistics evidence. Part of the prosecution's assertion was that Ronald Light had knocked Bella off her bicycle before killing her. As said by author H. Russell Wakefield in a book he wrote about the case, The evidence pointed most emphatically to the fact that Bella Wright was shot while lying on her back in the road. On no other assumption can the discovery of the bullet be explicable. Marshall Hall's assertion was perhaps unbelievable. As he explained to a friend in a letter he wrote, the coincidence of the bullet was literally astounding, as I am convinced that the bullet that was found within 17 feet of the body never killed the girl. But the deadly thing was that the accused man had in his possession at the time identical bullets. True, I elicit it in cross-examination. They are made in hundreds of millions, but for all that, it was a coincidence. Now, the coincidence of a bullet lying in the road 20 feet away from the body of a gunshot victim and yet not being connected to said death, is almost beyond belief. But, it seems there may have been some facts somewhat supporting this conclusion. First, if Bella was shot through the head while lying on the ground, one would think the bullet would have lodged in the ground right underneath the body, or depending on the exact angle of entry fairly nearby. But this argument can be negated by simply having it that she was not actually lying on the ground when shot, then the presence of the bullet is not as easily disputed. Second, the size of the bullet wound found might be more consistent with a smaller caliber bullet such as a 32, and the police had made a fairly grave error when they neglected to actually do ballistics tests to determine what caliber of bullet had actually made the wound. It still may have been the 455, but this failure made it easy to introduce doubt. The prosecution also made an error when they put a local gunsmith named Harry Clark on the stand, rather than any of the established experts on ballistics. Marshall Hall managed to capitalize on Clark's unfamiliarity with Webley's service revolvers to establish doubt that it was, indeed, that sort of weapon which had killed Bella. Lastly, and perhaps most vitally, call into question the statement George Measures heard Light make to his niece, Bella, I thought you had gone the other way. This was easily done by asking whether the word he said might not have been his niece's name, but instead hello. Though Measures insisted that his accounting was correct, Marshall Hall once again had managed to introduce doubt here. When Ronald Light himself was called, he too didn't dispute many of the established facts. He didn't deny he was the man on the green bicycle. He did, however, state that his service revolver was confiscated when he left the army and that the holster and ammunition found in the canal were his, as were the bicycle parts that Enoch Whitehouse had found. He claimed that on the night of the murder, 
He had met Bella on the road, but that he didn't know her name, nor where she lived. He rode with her into Galby, and when she went into her uncle's house, he said that she had told him she would be about 15 minutes. He waited around this long, and was about to leave, when, he said, he had to make some repairs to his bicycle, claiming this accountant for why he was still there an hour later. He said that when he met back up with Bella, they rode down Galby Road, otherwise referred to as the Upper Road, and rode with her until an intersection a bit west of Kings Norton. He continued westward along Galby Road toward Leicester, while she turned south down a lane eventually leading to Gartree Road. He further claimed that, aware that police were hunting a man with a green bicycle, and apparently not wanting to get embroiled in a murder inquiry, in October he decided to throw the, bike, the bicycle away after filing off the serial number so that it couldn't be traced back to him. He perhaps rightly claimed that he didn't want to come forward because everyone had apparently jumped to the conclusion that the man with the green bicycle had murdered the girl. I did not deliberately make my mind up not to go forward. I was astounded and frightened at this unexpected thing. I kept hesitating, and in the end drifted into not doing anything at all. In short, though, one could definitely say that if not guilty, Light certainly acted as though he were. After Ronald Light was questioned in his own defense, the case swiftly drew to a close. In the end, Light was found not guilty of the murder of Bella Wright. Edward Marshall Hall had introduced enough doubt into the minds of the jurors, and the final piece of the case was an inability by the prosecution to produce any witness to dispute Light's assertion that he had parted ways with Bella about 20 minutes prior to her death. An alternative explanation for what happened to Bella was presented in 1922 by author H. Truman Humphreys in a piece appearing in the Strand magazine. Although a work of fiction, Humphreys' tale proposed that a young man, lying in the nearby field behind a sheep trough, was shooting for sport with a 455 rifle and had shot the crow found dead nearby. This notion was perhaps partially inspired by some questioning of Henry Clark during the trial concerning some striations on the bullet that Edward Marshall Hall thought was more consistent with having been fired from a rifle than a revolver. As chance would have it, Bella Wright was cycling past at just this moment and turned her head to look into the field for some reason. The shooting was thus accidental, with Bella being killed by the same bullet that killed the crow. But there are serious problems with this theory, foremost of which is the fact that a 455 caliber bullet is powerful enough that it would have virtually destroyed the body of the crow. Also recall that it was strongly believed that the fatal bullet had been fired from a smaller range than someone lying in the middle of the field. Most significantly, it appears that the crow had not actually been shot, but was merely dead. Besides, the presence of blood, presumably Bella's, on its feet, implies that it most likely died after the girl had already been shot. The theory of accidental death is dis disbelieved by most, although to play devil's advocate, as discussed in the trial section, we don't know for certain that Bella was killed by a 455 bullet. Then there is the obvious theory that Ronald Light was the killer of Bella Wright and got away with it. Mary Ann Wright said that an army officer on a motorcycle often passed by their home and appeared to be checking out Bella. And in conversation with Sally Ward, Bella's co-worker and sister of her fiancé Archie, 
Bella herself referred to a soldier who often accosted her on Shady Lane in Evington as she passed through that village on her way home from work in the evenings. Shady Lane isn't marked on the Google map I provided a link to, but it's a bit west of Bella's house, near St. Dennis Church in Evington. Ronald Light didn't dispute owning a 455 service revolver. Although he claimed to no longer have it at the time of the murder, he may have just been lying, of course, or may have possessed a gun of a different type. After all, remember that the wound in Bella's head may have been more consistent with a smaller ammunition anyway. Certainly when he was arrested at Cheltenham, a 22 caliber pistol had been found in his room. One piece of supposed evidence long rumored to exist was that at one point, Ronald Light had in fact confessed to the murder, but that the document never saw the light of day. It was theorized for a long while that this document was just a rumor, the kind of retroactive re- rewriting of history that often appears in police memoirs written long after the fact. In 2007, though, writer Bill Donahue found the typewritten statement languishing in the archives of the Leicestershire County Records Office. It was examined and declared the most likely, though not definitively, be genuine by Robert Radley of the Radley Forensic Document Laboratory. The Bally Statement, as it was called, was typewritten a few days after the conclusion of the trial. Ronald Light had apparently gone to Superintendent Levi Bally of the Leicestershire Police and confessed to the murder, sort of. As is written in the report, I was telling her about the war and my experiences in France. I had my revolver in my raincoat pocket, and we dismounted for her to look at it. I fired off some shots in the afternoon for practice, and I had no idea there was a loaded cartridge in it. I think she dismounted on the right side of her machine, and the two bicycles were between us. I am not sure whether she actually took a hold of it or not, but her hand was out to take it when it went off. Light said that his lawyers had not known of this when he was on trial. Though the authenticity of the Bowie statement wasn't 100% determined, it was found that it was also referred to in communications with the Leicestershire police, though. So, it appears that for whatever reason, the Attorney General declined to retry Light for perjury, and there the matter lay. It is true, though, that even Light's confession can be disputed, or at least questioned, in some regards. The positioning of where Bella's body was found on the road and the presence of the two high hedgerows along the sides of the road would seem to indicate that, if the positions of the two people was where Light said they were, he was, pre- he was standing practically in the hedge. This seems a bit unlikely, although I admit he could have been leaning against the gate, firing into the field. And there the case lies. It's still technically unsolved, though as long as the Bally statement is genuine, and it indeed appears to be, the resolution might be known. It was, of course, hinted during the trial and afterwards that Ronald Light was a violent pervert who became obsessed with Bella, the obvious implications being that the soldier Marianne Wright mentioned and the soldier that had accosted Bella on Shady Lane were him. It was assumed that on the day of the murder, he had propositioned Bella, been rejected, and then in the matter of so many other rejected stalkers, shot her. Is this the case? Was the Bally statement itself just another lie? Or is that the truth of the matter, and did he shoot Bella completely by accident? Or was the truth that some third party unknown to anybody had shot her? We might never know at this point. 
Ronald Light, if he was guilty, never reoffended. He changed his name for a time to avoid the notoriety, went on to marry in 1934, and moved to Kent. There he changed his name back, as people were less familiar with the case, and it was in Kent that he died in 1975. My own conclusions are that Light was guilty. The idea of a third party I completely discount. I do find myself waffling back and forth on whether he killed her deliberately or accidentally as he stated, however. Fact is, if it was deliberate, no real motive was ever really established. Certain facts seem to imply he was a stalker, but that's not for sure. The soldier who appeared to have a fixation on Bella might have been someone else, and might, or might not, have even had any connection. What do you think happened? And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.